in a constantly changing world. Today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. And the question today is this, can one person really see the bigger picture? Can that one person really drive lasting change? And I think you'll find after listening to this podcast, the unequivocal answer is yes. So I'm absolutely delighted for friend and colleague Nazir Afsal to be joining me on today's podcast. So Nazir, it is absolutely lovely to see you again and welcome to The Leadership Enigma. You're absolutely welcome and delighted to speak to you, Adam. It's been 15 odd years uh, since we first met and maybe uh, nearly a decade since we last saw each other. So literally, I'm sure you and I could just carry on talking as if we hadn't been apart for so many years. I know that's so true. Yeah. Now, Nazir, to uh, the listeners who, who may not know you, um, you have a list of awards as long as my arm, but I'm just going to ne- mention some of you, uh, just a few of them. Uh, you've had Asian Lawyer Personality Award. You've had the Daily Mirror People's Award. I remember that one, actually. Yep. The Justice Award, the Crown Prosecution Service Award, British Muslim Award. In 2005, I think you got your OBE, or Order of the British Empire, from Her Majesty, no less. Indeed. I think that's right. Indeed. And from a, a professional background, you're a lawyer as well. And you were the former Chief Crown Prosecutor of the Crown Prosecution Service and the former CEO of the Police and Crime Commissioners. So you've spent many years within criminal justice and that's where we first met. What made you first go into criminal justice? Because we're going to delve into some of the things you've dealt with, which are incredible. What first brought you to that life? Uh, I mean, growing up, uh, I suspect it was, I didn't have any role models. It's so much easier now. Uh, you will have lawyers who look like you, who perhaps have similar backgrounds to you. Yeah. But growing up in inner city Birmingham, I had books. I had Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. I had yeah. Nelson Mandela was a lawyer. Mahatma Gandhi was a lawyer. So um, th- these were people way beyond, well, one didn't exist, and the other two uh, were either in prison or dead. And so I didn't really have anybody around me. But it was, I think it was an element of uh, what my father was doing. My father was, wasn't a lawyer, but he was very much, uh, as, a, as a new immigrant to the country in the early 60s, yeah. providing support and guidance for the community. And I saw merit in that. And I thought, actually, uh, I don't want to be doing the... You know, very often immigrants or sons of immigrants or daughters of immigrants were persuaded to follow careers such as medicine or engineering, kinds of careers that, uh, uh, to be blatant about it, uh, there was a view at some point in the, in the 70s we might be kicked out. Therefore, we need to have a career that would, would be uh, transferable back to the country we came from. Uh, and my father said to me, you know, one, we've got far too many lawyers back in Pakistan. We don't need any more. And secondly, you only need lawyers to protect you from other lawyers. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, was, it, was, it was a bit of a push uh, to take on that career. But I think it was a, a burning sense of justice coming from my own background and experience, you know, suffering abuse, suffering uh, bullying, um, racist abuse, all of that during the 60s and 70s. I think all of that had an impact on me, which made me realize actually that something, I can do something about it. 
you know, you've dealt with some of the most difficult cases. So I'm, I'm kind of shuttling forward in your career. Uh, here's just an example. I know you, you dealt with uh, a number of honor killing cases, forced marriage cases. I know that was, uh, that's always been a passion of yours to help uh, with, with that issue. One of the things that um, uh, people seem to think is that I'm an expert in so many of these areas. I never was, Adam. What I was, was an advocate. Yep. So there were experts, the people who were victim survivors, the groups who work with victim survivors who'd come to me and I was very, well, they wouldn't necessarily come to me, but I'd be prepared to listen to them and open myself up for them and then use whatever resources I had at my disposal to do something about it. So you mentioned forced marriage, for example. Back in 2004, I organized what was, I thought then, the first conference in this country on forced marriage. I've subsequently learned, learned it was the world's first conference on wow. forced marriage. In 2004? Uh, 2004. That's not and that long ago, really, now. Well, it just goes to show how under the radar most of the things I've dealt with were and right. they were they were problems for them and not for us and so I opened my door to them I listened to what they had to say I uh, was blown away by um, how little um, strategic engagement there was how little government engagement there was or policing and then realized actually I can do something about this if they told me more if they gave me their ideas shared with me their concerns then maybe I could act upon them and this really focuses on the title of this this episode about the power of one. I suppose you dealt with such hard-hitting, high-profile cases because for people to know that these made the national press. These were on the six o'clock news. These were on the front of national daily newspapers because the, the honour-killing cases that you dealt with, you dealt with the, the dreadful murder of the two police officers in Manchester, the child yeah. sexual exploitation uh, rings that we had. And that's just a few nows. So in yeah. many ways, were, were these so important, so difficult, that they were catalysts for you to say, actually, I need to be the catalyst for change, and I'll see the bigger picture? I, I like the word catalyst for change. I also like the word difficult. I always used to say to my teams, uh, can we go for our difficult tray first? You right. Know? Um, it, you know, I'm, I'll be honest with you, Adam, I get bored very easily. And so the staple diet of a lawyer tends to be stuff that they always do day in, day out. And for me, that wasn't me. Right. Uh, I, I was in a position now, at, you know, at being the chief, uh, to pick and choose the things I get involved in and engaged, with, uh, engaged on. And I decided that I wanted to choose the difficult things because I would be bored otherwise. And so it's a, it's a negative and a positive. You know, why do I get bored so easily? I've never answered that question. But ultimately, it led me down the path of looking for the things that were really challenging, that would really um, make a change. You know, you can, I don't know, I remember talking to a commercial lawyer, no, no, no disrespect to any commercial lawyers, but this particular lawyer spent five days working on the word such in a document. And you go, and it, and <laughs> That's it goes, why you and I were never commercial lawyers. Well, exactly. And I'd spent five days solving crimes and protecting victims and uh, telling police officers to do their job better, all manner of things. And I felt my job and my life was much more satisfying uh, than hers. She made a lot more money than I did. Let's make that very, very yeah. clear. Uh, but at the same time, I think my life was more satisfying. So I would walk into my office and I would go to my teams and say, what is the most difficult thing that you've got on your plate? And I asked them to share that with me or I would go seeking as much information about these things and then realize that this is what will make me interested for the next rest, day, rest of the day and potentially the rest of the month. Adam, I did not ever imagine 
uh, letting somebody else do something that I wouldn't do myself. So, right. you know, one of the things you mentioned at the outset was um, getting an OBE from the Queen. I'm also the only person ever to have prosecuted a case in front of the Queen, you know? So on her uh, Golden Jubilee... So her Golden Jubilee 2002, here's what the legal profession do really well. They decided that every case is brought in her name, but she's never been to see a case. So what we'll do as a present for her 50 years on the throne is give her a case to look at. Right? <laughs> that's, no, that pressure, you no pressure that, then, has. Well, that tells you what everything the legal profession went to, to uh, what they see as a present. Um, so we had the Royal Course of Justice. I was the prosecutor. It was an appeal against sentence. Yep. I turn up. I hadn't, I must admit, I hadn't given it any thought other than the fact that I thought it was a 20-minute hearing. Uh, defense counsel was there. I looked up at the bench. There was the Lord Chief Justice, the Master of the Rolls, the Vice Chancellor, three most senior criminal judges in the <laughs> land. To their, to their right, Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> behind me, behind me, every High Court judge in the land. 110 High Court judges. <laughs> oh uh, I sit there, I do my opening, the defense counsel does hers, the judges have a good little laugh and, and come to their outcome. 20 minutes later, we're having, we're having a reception with the Queen. I'm leaving the RCJ, Royal Court of Justice, afterwards, and then my legs start shaking, realizing, what the hell have I done? That could have been career-ending. Yeah. Totally career-ending. You know, there was no hiding place given who was in the room. Um, but that was me, I think, Adam. I literally would have done... Nobody else wanted to do it, by the way. Where did that um, come from? Where did that kind of... That courage come from to grab it with both hands? Is it courage, or... is it courage or just foolhardiness? Or, no, or, or, I've or, known uh, you too long. It's not foolhardiness, uh, yeah. Naz. Well, no, I think, I think just simply... Again, it goes back to my point. This is really difficult. Nobody else wants to do it. And there's here. I put my hand up. I'll do it. Uh, and then, of course, afterwards, oh, we could all done that. We could all, literally, it's quite <laughs> strange how people reacted afterwards but the point is that i think literally that that anecdote sums me up because i i also the lack of preparation right i went in i went in there thinking it's no big deal you know uh and i did it thankfully and then only afterwards did i realize the potential consequences of how it could have gone wrong um it didn't go wrong but the point is yeah absolutely like a bull in a china shop i'll go in there thinking Right, I can do this, and there's no, there's what's you know what is the only limit? The only limit to what you can achieve, Adam, is the one that's ones that you create for yourself. No, I you agree know? with you. Uh, and so that's been typical, really, of my career. You know, if somebody tells me this is really difficult, or we've never been able to do this, a good example, another good example, is uh, is the um, driven suicide case. I dealt with a case in 2007 where a woman was found hanging in her shed in London and um, the, it was clearly suicide, but yep. she had a, a bruise on her face, which was fresh. And uh, the police were tempted to charge the partner with common assault. And I said, but that doesn't really reflect what had happened here. And then we found a diary which contained all the abuse that she'd been recording by her partner. And I said to my teams, no, come on. The public would not welcome us simply charging a common assault in these circumstances. Surely the, the greater mischief here is that somehow he drove her to suicide. I saw the bigger picture. I pursued the case, took it to the Court of Appeal, and they said, you're absolutely right. You can be driven to suicide, and that, that can lead to manslaughter. Absolutely, but rest assured, there were people telling me I can't do it, shouldn't do it, more importantly. Uh, it would be really expensive, etc. But the reality, Adam, is that dozens and dozens of NGOs, charities, organizations working with victim survivors suddenly felt they had extra power 
because I just pushed the envelope. I didn't at the end know what was going to happen, but I, I decided that what was the right thing to do rather than what was the more expedient thing to do. Now, Naz, every now and again, the label Maverick has been leveled at me. And I don't know whether you associate with that term yeah. or, or yeah. you know, you and I were, I think when we first met, you know, almost 20 years ago, yeah. there was a feeling potentially of kindred spirits. Uh, you always yeah. had a can do attitude, uh, yeah. we both working within criminal justice. I remember we met at a metropolitan police conference. We were both speaking at that. Or have you just been that person who says, no, we can do this. It just needs one person to kick it yeah. off. I've, I've always been that way, but I've never had the, power or influence until you know i got to the roles of chief prosecutor or chief exec or whatever yeah. i didn't have the ability to actually influence other people in what they did but i've always been uh, a maverick i've also you know strange as it may sound despite being you know the father of four i've been a bit of a loner right. uh you know uh, i think leadership and loneliness go hand in hand sometimes uh and that when you say kindred spirits you know i think i made a judgment a long time ago that i don't really have friends i have acquaintances right uh, that uh, yeah, I haven't got the time to build to, de to, to devote to something uh, long enough. Um, but Maverick is a. It, it, I think it sums me up, to be honest. Uh, I think if you spoke to people I work with, and by that I mean the people who are preventing me from doing stuff, uh, uh, they would say Nazir is a maverick, uh, a gun that can't be trusted. I think the description of Maverick uh, is one that a number of people that work with me would recognise, uh, on the basis that they did their damnedest to stop me doing stuff uh, and I would still do it. Uh, every single, I mean, uh, they often, and bureaucracies are very good at this, are extremely risk averse. Uh, and rarely do they go beyond what they think they're allowed to do or could do. Right. I never thought that. I never saw a limit to what could be achieved. Uh, I always, I mean, this is, I can talk about these things now having left this, left that, that arena. But, you know, very often I would do stuff and tell them about it afterwards. Um, very often I would uh, just pursue what I thought was the right thing to do and then ultimately justify it afterwards. I think that's the right approach, to be honest, simply because otherwise, because of their risk-averse nature, they would have stopped me doing that. Another, back in 2003-04, when we had a, our first knife crime epidemic in this country, yeah. I remember telling my teams, right, we need to talk to the people who are most impacted by this. And they said, yeah, let's invite young people to our offices. Guess what, Adam? Not one came to our offices. Why would wow. they come to our offices? I said, no, no, let's go to them. Oh, they yeah. said, ooh, don't know about that. Um, so I ended up above a bookmakers in Harlesden talking to young men wearing bandanas across their faces about the impact that knife crime had on them, how they were, um, uh, how policing had uh, made them feel uh, isolated, how social services and the authorities had let them down, how they felt they needed to carry a knife stupidly to protect themselves. Right. I went back to my office well, with all this learning, and the first thing I heard from somebody was, Nazir, you didn't carry out a risk assessment. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm back, number one. Number two, look at the, what I've got in terms of data and information. Yeah. I then fed that to the Home Office, and then in 2004-05, we had the first ever national strategy for tackling knife crime. And that was in large part fed on those conversations that I had with people who were most impacted by it. But if I'd listened to the people who said, where's the risk assessment? We wouldn't have got there. Never have done it. So if I said to you, so now what was, what was one of the most difficult cases? This might be an impossible question to answer. Mm. What, what is a case that really sticks out for you? It may not have been the most high profile, but it, perhaps it's the one that's left 
the most lasting, uh, indelible memory for you? I think the most vulnerable person I ever came across um, was a, a young woman who was 19 or 20 when uh, she came to my attention. Yeah. She'd arrived in this country as a 10-year-old uh, with a passport that said she was 19. She, had, um, she was deaf, she was dumb, she had severe learning difficulties, she spoke no languages of any note. Uh, she was now a slave in a house in South Manchester. She was being sexually abused by uh, one member of the family. She was being labor abused by the rest of them, making counterfeit goods for them, etc., etc., that they were selling. Uh, when she came to our attention, uh, by chance, as it happens, um, everybody told me there's no way on earth that we can get her to give evidence in this case. Right. One, we don't, not, one, she doesn't know anything about what a case is. She's never met a police officer in her life. She doesn't know what justice is, any of those things. So we took this best part of two years, Adam, through uh, teaching her sign language, uh, to uh, dealing with the trauma of her experience, to get to the point where she could give evidence. Then we persuaded a court, a judge, uh, to allow us to only sit for four hours a day. The, yes. case would only, the trial would only be heard four hours a day because she could not, actually answer any more than four questions a day. Uh, her, she gave evidence for 49 days, which to my mind is probably the longest that anybody has given evidence in a criminal trial in this country. Uh, at the end of, of six months, uh, the family who were holding her hostage in effect uh, and abusing her uh, were uh, convicted. And then the next thing we did was, for the first time again in, in UK history, we got a confiscation order against the family. So we took away their home and gave her a hundred thousand pounds. So she was able to buy a property. So that girl who was living as a slave in a cellar in South Manchester, who couldn't speak, who couldn't hear, now is studying in her own home in Manchester. Uh, and that is the journey that she's been on and the journey that she came from. I take enormous pride in what she was able to achieve. Uh, and that just goes to show when people tell me, and they did over and over again, no way on earth can we get this case to court. We did. And more than that, we have rehabilitated her life, restored her uh, hope and, and potential, uh, and also punished those who uh, offended against her. And it was, it's teamwork. Uh, there's no getting away from it. We had a phenomenal team, not just within the prosecution right. but, and the police, the local authority and everybody else, but it needed a steer and I hopefully gave them that steer. So that's what I mean really when we come back to this the power of one because one person can't do everything but maybe one person can be the catalyst for things being done and maybe being done differently. One person has to say right let's hopefully one person in a position of responsibility or authority whatever the word is has to be able to say I'm green lighting this and everybody else regardless of their concerns and their issues and their challenges will come on board, one hopes. Uh, and so, you know, I did the same thing with child sexual exploitation. Uh, back in um, the UK, there was an enormous number of people who were saying, you can't prosecute these cases. These girls who have been violated come from chaotic and troubled backgrounds. No jury would ever believe them. And I said, well, I believe them. Why are we saying that no jury would believe them? So why can't we do our job properly and make sure the jury do believe them? Right. And again, uh, once I'd done that, once... I had literally, literally greenlit it. Everybody else would then put all their energy, enthusiasm, talent, and skills to making it happen. And so it does need one person ultimately to press the button, but it then it energizes people to do what they need to do. 
in many ways, there's a, there's a big role modeling piece here, isn't there? That, you know, I suppose, you know, I always go back to that story. I think, you know, people always said you can't run the four minute mile and then Roger Bannister did the four minute mile. And I think there's a, there's a statistic about how many people then ran the four minute mile. So it took a person to say, or prove that it could be done in some ways you've, you've had that role for decades within yeah, the roles I, I that think, you've had. I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of you to say so, but I, I do feel, and this is where the maverick comes in because you don't, you, you often don't know, um, if you can ever say this publicly uh, without being beaten up. I mean, I've regularly been abused online, et cetera, the things I say or do. But the point, you're absolutely right. Who, who you know, was it the Wright brothers that said, right, I think human beings can fly. I bet, to, bet you everybody told them, yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> Don't be silly. <laughs> right? And now 100,000 flights a day go up. Well, not at the moment, but you know, generally they go up. You know, Rosa Parks said, I can sit on that seat. Why should I not be allowed to sit on that seat? And the consequences from that were extraordinary. So it does take one person ultimately to, to be, in their, in their cases, extraordinarily brave. In my case, I guess, simply just simply saying, look, if this is something we can do. Let's do it. I keep saying to people, I've seen the worst of humanity. Yeah. But I've also seen the best of humanity. Yes. I've seen people who really put their effort into something because they are passionate about it or they... Uh, just feel that it's the right thing to do. Now, Naz, this doesn't come without a price as well, because I know that you, you've been the victim of racism. You've been targeted by the far right. Uh, you've had to have police protection, the kids going to school in taxis, panic alarms fitted at the house. So with that going on, how do you still find the resilience or how do you still find the motivation to say, this is down to me, I can still be the power of one? I didn't even know what the word resilience meant until a couple of years ago. So uh, finding it, uh, I don't know what it was. And, I, and sometimes when you say you're resilient, actually, you know, I don't think I was. I mean, uh, there were, you mentioned what happened uh, with the far right. But, you know, in, in my book, I've written about when I ended up on an Al-Qaeda death list. So uh, uh, you, won't, you won't hear that in, from many people that I speak to on this podcast. Well, exactly. So back in 2006, I prosecuted a group of men who were, uh, demonstrating on the streets of London, calling for beheading of various people. And rather than charge them with um, public order offences, I charged them with soliciting murder. You don't see any more black placards uh, calling for the beheading of people, so it worked. Uh, but also those men uh, led to uh, me getting a visit from Special Branch telling me, uh, we're here to tell you we found your name on a verified Al-Qaeda death list. And my response to that Special Branch officer was, so what now? They said, no, no, we're legally we're just here to tell you you're on that list. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I said, well, thank you so much. I went home and hugged my children. I think everybody, everybody has their own uh, protective mechanisms or uh, the ways they can cope. And, uh, so w one of my coping, me coping mechanisms was the fact that I never took it home. Uh, right. My home was my safe environment. You know, I would never talk about my work. Uh, you know, if you've watched images of children being raped at work, it changes your world. Oh, the imagine. last thing you want to do, Adam, is talk to anybody that you know and love about what you've seen and heard. And so yeah. I, I, I always found that as uh, one way of coping. That stopped in 2012 when the far right decided to come for me. And I had a demonstration outside of my front door. I had a police officer placed outside my door. I had to teach my children how to use a panic alarm. Right. My children, you know, wow. you know, only all of that. You know, then I realized, actually, despite my very best efforts, I can't protect them from everything. And so, strange as it may sound, later in my career, I began become more open with them. And that, I think, is how I protected my mental health. Because 
it goes back to when you were um, leadership roles, very often you're lonely and you feel, who can I talk to about this that would not use it against me, you know? Uh, but actually, the people who are around you who care for you do want to hear uh, what it is that um, is bugging you and concerning you. Uh, you know, you filter it. You don't have to go into great detail. But actually, I learned late in life that I need to share more of these things. And uh, institutionally, we're really bad at giving counselling. Uh, we were really bad at providing the level of support that we needed. But I, I ended up doing it for myself. Naz, I very selfishly could just chat to you for hours because, as I say, it's been a while since you and I have seen each other and worked together. It was always great fun. You sent me some notes before we had this conversation. And, you know, as people are listening to this, they may be thinking, how do you transfer some of the experiences and the lessons that you are sharing into their day-to-day life. And I know there are three that you, you sent to me, and I just want to mention those and, and get your thoughts on them. Uh, one of them you said to me was about listening more. Leaders are rubbish at listening, in, invariably. Um, some of them uh, because they think they know the answers. Others because they don't want to be questioned on what they think they know. Uh, I, I'm, I've always said, I don't know anything. I li- literally know nothing unless <laughs> somebody who is an expert, and that could be a survivor, a victim, a police officer, uh, somebody in authority, an agency of another agency comes and tells me what they tell me. And then suddenly I know what I know. And uh, listener, you have to listen, you have to actively listen. That means acting upon what you've heard. One of the problems we have in society these days, Adam, is that people don't actively listen. So do you think Grenfell would have happened? I keep coming back to Grenfell, which is the fire in West London where 70 plus people yeah. were killed yeah. you know, that was because of, you know, in many respects the cladding was really poor. Do you think it would have happened, the decision to put that particular cladding on, if people who lived in those premises were on the group that decided what cladding goes on? I don't think it would have. You know, decisions taken by people remote uh, will not be as good as those that involve the people who are most impacted by your decisions. So, so I, I think listen, listening is key. Listening is key. I'm with you. And, and you touched on the second one there as well, because uh, one of your points was about seek out experts because you just aren't one. And I'm absolutely. Pretty- I've, always, I've always been um, intrigued by people who have um, built up a, a specialism in a particular area, whether it's you know, something really, really esoteric or something a little bit more general. And I've always looked out and read about what they have to say. I've, if I can, I sit down with them and talk to them. And before you know it, within a very short space of time, I have become a semi-expert. Right. In the land of the blind, Adam, the one-eyed man or woman is king. <laughs> you know, if you know a little bit, you know a lot more than most people. Well, there, there speaks a trial lawyer, maybe. That, 100%. The jury know nothing, do they, when we go in. Uh, but by the end, we hope they know a great deal more. And so, absolutely, I, I always seek out experts. And the third one you sent me was, the comfort zone is your weakness. You know, too many people I know, uh, when I left the Crown Prosecution Service in 2015, a lot of the people who were similar rank to me are still there and will be there for the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and uh, and I, I despair for them. Uh, right. They may not like to hear it um, because it must be really cushy. You know, you're getting your salary in your bank uh, and you are doing the same thing day, out, day in, day out, perhaps with the same people. Um, and going to see the same people. You know, I, I could never live that way. Uh, you know, I, I think that that, in many respects, prevents innovation. Uh, in many respects, it prevents people from seeking out new challenges uh, because they are so content with the lives that they have created for them. It must be 
uh, brilliant uh, being um, in that level of <laughs> comfort. Um, but, you know, it would never, I mean, I've spent, I spent three months in Somalia recently helping them develop a legal system. Uh, I've spent the best part of a year or w- weeks every year doing the same thing in Pakistan. You know, I don't like comfort zone. Uh, I will always look for something that pushes my uh, boundaries, but ultimately I think will have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people. Well, now that's all I can say is long may that continue. Now, I've got three quite bizarre questions, which you've got no notice of, which I always try and finish here. And so the first one is this, uh, favourite hobby at the moment, or, or maybe it's been a hobby for a while, but what would you say that is? I love music. Uh, I used to be a DJ in the early 90s, prosecuting by day. <laughs> no DJ wonder you end up like working in Manchester again. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. So I love, I love music. I'd walk around, listen to music all day. And my tastes are very eclectic. So I could be listening to 80s stuff and house and garage and dance music from the 2000s. So uh, I just absolutely adore it. it uh, yeah, if I lost my hearing, I would really suffer. Okay. Now, your new book is out, The Prosecutor, which really now chronicles uh, the amazing life that you've had and the amazing stories that you've been involved in. So here's a question for you. What's your favourite word? I think uh, define. Define. Um, uh, largely because people used to always say to me, that you, you, you defi- you, you're defined by this or defined by that. And I'd keep turning around to them saying, no, no, no. It may refine me, but it doesn't define me. But I, I used to have, I, I mean, I love the word defined simply because it was being used so negatively against me. Okay. And here's my final question. What would be your best advice to a 21-year-old Naz? Follow your passion. It's what I say to my children. They're, um, they're, my daughter's just graduated and the others are at university or about to go to university. I've never told them what to do. Right. I always say to them, follow your passions. I would rather you make a bit of money and have a, a little less comfort, but do something you enjoy and love rather than do something because you think it's the right thing to do or people around you tell you it's the right thing to do. No, follow your passions. Well, Naz, what a lovely way to finish this episode of The Power of One. I think you have quite clearly answered the question, can one person see the bigger picture and start the change or be the catalyst for the change. And I think, uh, as you say, that's been an unequivocal yes. It's been great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I think you need to come back and chat to us again. I'm using the, I'm saying us, but me. I think you need to come (laughs) back and chat to me again in a couple of months. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. No worries at all. You're a star. All the best to you then. All the best now. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.